Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I am Woo! not Justin Lee Burke. I am Edward Cordy here with Sydney Angle. Hello. <laughs> and Cleo Rochat. Hi, everyone. Tonight, we're doing things a little bit differently, but... Despite that, Sydney, can you remind the audience what we normally do on this show? Absolutely. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Okay, so tonight we are our own guests, but we're going to be recapping what some of our other great guests have uh, taught us over the past episodes. Cleo, Sydney. Hello. Hi. So we're kind of our own guests today. Um, we are. A little bit of a different format, as we mentioned. But how about we get things started with uh, a few picks of the week? Either of you want to go first? That sounds great. I'll go. I have a very wholesome pick of the week. In the past week, I rediscovered kite flying. I flew a kite for the first time in probably a decade, and it was one of the most relaxing uh, experiences I've had. So that would be my pick of the week. Sydney, how about you? Oh, well, first of all, I love that. And now I want to go fly a kite, which I probably haven't done since I was like seven. So thanks for the recommendation. I know. Well, I was going to pick Spin Drift as my pick of the week because we are all currently drinking it right now. But I actually want to pick as my pick of the week stickers. Um, Mm. We recently got a new influx at my clinic. And honestly, it makes the kids' lives better, but it makes my life a lot better because after making a child cry, I get to then go choose a sticker with them, which is a much better last experience to leave them with. Amazing. This is the most pediatrics pick of the week grouping so far. (laughs) <laughs> you want to pick an adult beverage to mine's gonna be <laughs> mine's gonna be slightly more adult um i'm gonna pick getting married as my pick of the week um i would say very underrated and it's something that uh it's i think it's good to try so uh yeah just got just got married last week and so far so good well congratulations edward that's amazing Feels like bigger than a pick of the week. It's my pick of the month. (laughs) (laughs) She gets a whole month. (laughs) (laughs) One whole month. Um, Great. So one of the things we're trying to do with this recap series is just dive right into content. Uh, So I'll get us started recapping the Kawasaki disease episode. Our guest on this episode was Dr. Adriana Tremolay, and uh, the episode is written and produced by the great Nick Lee, MD. I think that's also his Twitter name. So kind of just starting with some of the clinical aspects of Kawasaki disease, uh, something that I've now seen a little bit in residency is Dr. Tremolay recommended really sitting down with parents and looking actually at pictures on their phones when they start describing the symptoms that their children have, because the symptoms can come and go. And she was talking about how you really just need to get these symptoms at some point during the course of the disease. They don't all have to be there right when 
the patient arrives to the hospital. And what sort of symptoms was she talking about? Um, well, she, you know, she started with fever and I just loved this like one line that she had. And you could tell that this is a line she used a lot. She said, you don't need to have five days of fever because what are you waiting for? An aneurysm. And uh, her point just being, if you have fever um, and these following symptoms that we're going to talk about, it doesn't have to be a five-day fever to have Kawasaki disease. You could be catching it early. Um, so one of the other, you know, kind of following like this crash mnemonic, um, the next one is conjunctivitis, which is not really conjunctivitis, but it works for the mnemonic. And it's actually injection of the blood vessels of the eye. And, and there's kind of some very specific findings, uh, one specific finding in this. Yeah. So I think that one thing that stood out to me with this, first of all, is that in Kawasaki disease, the eye symptoms are almost always bilateral without exudate, which really differentiates it from a lot of times when kids are coming in with a viral or sometimes, uh, or often a bacterial conjunctivitis that is more unilateral. And then also to the extent that we are able to visualize it, perilimbic sparing also increases the likelihood of a diagnosis. And I love that she talked about how, you know, while we learn academically about this perilimbic sparing finding, it can be very difficult in the setting of pediatrics to truly get that. So she was like, as much as you can glean from your eye exam. Exactly. Exactly. And then next up, she talked about the rash a little bit. Yeah. So with the rash, one thing that she pointed out was really that you would expect to see accentuation in the uh, genital urinary area, that if it's on the palms and the soles, that's really more indicative of a viral etiology to me that immediately makes me think hand, foot, mouth disease. But it's important to remember that there are a lot of viruses that present with a outbreak on the hands and feet. And I, I really appreciated how she, she talked about this rash and KD can look so many different ways. And one line that she had that I remember is it, this rash can look anything except like a true vesicular rash, which I think is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Vesicular seems to really separate uh, conditions um, in, you know, in particular HSV. So um, kind of continuing on the clinical, you know, there's, you expect to see adenopathy uh, with Kawasaki disease strawberry tongue classically, but really she, she talks about any sort of mucous membrane changes. It can be cracked lips, really red lips, uh, strawberry tongue. And then finally, the, she talked about the hands and the feet classically being swollen as well. Yeah. Thanks for kind of recapping the, the clinical features. Can you talk a little bit about the diagnostic criteria and some of the differentials that she went into? Yeah, definitely. So this was a definitely a focus of Dr. Tremolay. She really talked about the differential diagnosis a lot. And as a new provider, I actually really appreciated the way she talked about it because she talked about it as keeping Kawasaki on the differential diagnosis for a lot of these conditions, but they include toxic shock syndrome, EBV, strep, staph. And the way she described it is keeping these on the differential, gathering data. And then if something's just not fitting, going back to that initial list you had and saying, okay, now let's go looking for something else. And I love how she talked about, if you don't know about KD, if you're not thinking about it, you won't see it. So just also reiterating that it should, should always be somewhere on your differential. For sure. Edward, can you tell us a little bit about incomplete KD? Yes. Incomplete KD 
the nemesis of every new provider caring for kids. It's if you don't have a slam dunk. And uh, she talked about that's when you go to the labs. If you don't have, I believe it's four out of five of these findings along with fever. That's why really these labs were uh, developed into an algorithm to not miss aneurysms. That was the goal, which I learned from her. So CRP, ESR, CBC, albumin, ALT, and UA with micro. And Justin, during this episode, was asking about the severity of the labs and what, and asked our guest what that could mean for the risk of coronary artery aneurysms in the future. And really, she emphasized that thrombocyte, any like severe abnormalities are concerning, but she's she spoke about um, thrombocytopenia as being a marker of very bad disease and is uh, associated with coronary artery aneurysms. Definitely. So do you want to transition to talking a little bit about her management pearls or things you noticed in this episode that really maybe helped shape your plan for these patients once they are diagnosed with KD? Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, but for me personally, it helps just to have a big picture in my head and what she talked about, Dr. Tremlay said, once you diagnose KD, goal is admission in IVIG as soon as possible. And she really talked, she kind of really hit on some of the actual real life difficulties of getting somebody to the floor quickly in IVIG, which I appreciated a lot. She said that once, you know, you, you know, you will be consulting cardiology with these kids. And in particular, you want to make sure that you get an echo and pay close attention to the coronary disease scores. And if they're not there, ask for them, page cardiology again, ask for them again, uh, because they're really helpful to follow. And they could be helpful to follow even like 20 years down the line. Uh, Edward clearly wants to make himself the favorite of all the cardiologists by paging them again and again. Um, that sounds like a great strategy, but I just want to really highlight, I, I found this conversation about coronary disease scores really interesting because it wasn't something I had heard of previously. And specifically, there are cutoffs in the numbers that can be used for determining what sort of antiplatelet therapy or anticoagulation is appropriate for the patient. So I'm not going to recap those numbers there, but just kind of recognizing that that is a valuable way to use those Z-scores in the immediate management as well as the secondary management. Awesome. Yeah. I, I actually, I hadn't really focused on that, heard about that before either. And I also just want to say cardiologists, I value you and I appreciate everything that you do. And especially your Z-scores. <laughs> Um, Edward, can you tell us a little bit about um, what do we tolerate in terms of fevers after IVIG? So I think, you know, and it's actually in the name of the, the episode, we had a recrudescent guest. Something that we kind of, I would say, fear a little bit is a recrudescence of fevers uh, after 36 hours post IVIG, because what we know is that that increases the aneurysm risk. And what was really interesting to me was to hear kind of one of the world experts on this topic basically say, it's not really known what's the best treatment if that happens. So on some coasts, they go more towards uh, IVIG again. And then on at other, like on the East Coast, she was saying they have um, uh, different therapies. Some places do steroids and Fliximab. And she mentioned Anakinra as well. 
it was very cool how she talked about how the response to IVIG and the recrudescence of fever can stratify your risk for uh, the development of aneurysm. Exactly. Kind of cornerstones of treatment continue to be IVIG and aspirin. And for the aspirin, it starts with a high dose and then it goes down on discharge. Um, and that's something I feel like aspirin in children is something that we, uh, from the very beginning, think about um, kind of being cautious about. And, and then here it is, like, this is the time that we can and should use it. So really, really good to hear about that. And then once these patients are discharged, um, what sort of pearls did Dr. Tremolet give us in terms of the follow-up? So she almost a third of the episode was focused on this. She considered follow-up one of the most important parts of treatment of Kawasaki disease. In particular, that like within leaving two weeks of leaving the hospital, every child should have another echo. Um, and, and that's when the Z-scores come in once again and making sure that the coronary arteries are stable. Um, and then she mentioned this big leap again from the 18, you know, seven, 16, 17, 18 year old, uh, to a young adult, someone who has had Kawasaki before, and maybe they've been followed as a pediatric patient. And now they're about to go see an adult provider. And hopefully sometimes that can be the same provider. Um, you know, if they're going to see Sydney in Massachusetts, that can be the same provider and or uh, you. <laughs> hopefully. Yes. And, um, uh, and that the providers really about these patients in particular have to talk because what can happen and something that everybody is, you know, looking out for and being cognizant of is that if someone is 20, 30 years old, they can have a complication of previous Kawasaki disease. So that 30 year old coming in with chest pain, um, you know, she mentioned that of course, uh, anxiety, panic disorder, costochondritis, maybe even like precordial catch syndrome, those things are going to be maybe higher on the differential, but past Kawasaki disease, she said, keep that on the differential. I really appreciate that Pearl. And I think it's important that we keep this as a diagnosis that, that kind of follows the patient on their chart that we're checking in on. And I definitely see that as a valuable thing in the transitional phase, which I know that that's not something that we focus on in this podcast, but is really essential. Absolutely. Thank you so much for recapping all of those excellent pearls, Edward. No uh -huh. problem. Who should we go to next? I can. Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> all right. I will go ahead and take the next episode. We will go in a chronologic order of when these episodes came out. So I am going to launch our recap of pearls from episode number 19, which was our episode focused on concussion. Our guest for this episode was the fantastic Dr. Angela Brown, and this episode was written and produced by the wonderful Dr. Jess Kelly. Um, so starting off with kind of the history component of concussion, one thing that I found really valuable in this conversation was a conversation about using a post-concussion symptom scale to monitor symptoms and also their change over time. I really like the idea of sending a patient home with these symptom scales so that let's say you're not following up for a week, you can give clear parameters if this changes, follow up with this, or you can then look at the trending there. And I just like, I think that that's something that I'm going to implement immediately. And then 
in terms of history, the other big thing that stood out to me was that she talked about there being five domains of, uh, she really, we didn't really use the conversation concussion in the episode or the terminology concussion. It was more about mild traumatic brain injury, which is certainly a more accurate way of describing it. And in terms of the five domains, I think we, we think about and talk a lot about the cognitive complications of concussion and to some extent, headache, migraine, but she wanted to highlight that in addition to those two, we also need to be looking for vestibular, oculomotor, and mood slash anxiety complications, or actually just domains, ways that TBI can present and be using the proper diagnostic tool, um, rating scales, follow-up related to the way that the TBI is presenting. That's great. I loved the the learning about the five different domains of mild TBI. The other thing, moving into physical exam, Dr. Brown really talked about watching these patients um, and monitoring their trajectory. So looking for um, increased drowsiness, agitation. She talked about how the patients are engaging with the examiners, if there's any changes in the way that they're speaking, um, and then, um, or how they're making eye contact and then doing obviously a good neurological exam. Um, but I, I loved the, the case that she, she spoke about, which was a patient who was in, observed in the emergency department and started becoming more agitated as a symptom. And then I believe um, she got some imaging and there was a complication of the trauma. But I, I, I thought that was a really helpful example of, of what we're looking for in these patients when they present. Did she talk about anything else, Sydney, in terms of physical exam? I think that you did a really good job of recapping kind of the primary thing more than any particular finding monitoring over time change is really essential here. But the other one thing that stood out to me was making sure that you, in addition to doing things related to the neuro exam, are also doing a neck exam for signs of cervical strain injury. And that's something that sometimes when I'm seeing people post concussion, I am just so focused on that neuro exam that I need to make sure to take a step back and also look at the musculoskeletal component. Definitely. I really loved how she broke down, not really broke down, but basically just emphasized going back in, looking for any change at all. But sometimes, you know, we do need something like other kind of objective data points. And she did touch on on a little bit about testing. Sydney, what did she what did she tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a big fan of risk stratification and otherwise decision-making tools. And she suggested the PECARN, P-E-C-A-R-N tool, which is based on age, Glasgow Coma Scale score, signs of basilar fracture, and mental status changes, which is used to determine the appropriateness of head imaging. I believe there are also others out there, but I found that one to be a pretty good, pretty easy to use one. And based on those results that the testing that is indicated may in part depend on what is available in the facility. She actually recommended that an abbreviated brain MRI protocol can be a really, really valuable way to get a good look at what's going on. And that at her facility, it was just a matter of talking with them about doing it. Obviously, because it's abbreviated, it is a lot more tolerable for kids compared to the long process that is a typical brain MRI. And in terms of the primary outcome of identifying traumatic intracranial hemorrhage, it is as feasible and accurate as CT without the associated contrast exposure. Got it. Okay. So from that, plus my little bit of time in the adult ED, Sydney, what I'm hearing is head CT for everyone. 
<laughs> yes, yes, head knee tea for everyone. Um, and sorry, it, it, this is exactly the point. We're not trying to avoid contrast in these kids. We're trying to avoid radiation exposure oh. as much as possible. <laughs> exactly. Great. Well, I also, when when she was talking about the, the management and the observation period, learned a lot about what that actually means for these patients. Um, she spoke about the guidelines for a 24-hour period of observation, but really emphasized that that did not need to all happen in the emergency department or in the hospital, that it could be done at home if you feel there's a reliable caregiver who could monitor these symptoms and the trajectory that you spoke about, um, Sydney, that can be observed at home. One of the really interesting points also was thinking about the timing of this observation period, especially in kids. So she said, if it's overnight, you know, it may be wise to to wait a little bit longer if they're already going to be sleepy during that observation period, just to make sure that you you yourself as a clinician feel like you have a, a good understanding of, of what this trajectory looks like and how the patient's doing. Yeah, I think it was very clear from this conversation that the decision to discharge really needs to be a personalized one based on a variety of factors, most notably what you're observing and what you feel comfortable that you have observed in that period of time, and then what the social situation is like and whether it's a situation where the child can be appropriately observed at home and and is safe. And one thing she mentioned was also able to get back to an emergency room if things were to worsen. I think that kind of going from that observation period for that first 24 hours that's advised by the AAP, going to that next few days, she talked a lot about reintegration into the various different components of regular life. And I think there's been a lot of change in this over the last few decades. I don't know the exact time period, but she really emphasized that after two to three days of rest, you really should be starting to have the patient reintegrate into activity as tolerated, that not keeping the kids out of school for a week helps them with recovery, can prevent depression, um, and then just kind of being symptom guided. So if their symptoms are worsening in that time, then reduce the intensity or pause as needed, but really trying to just help move things forward as quickly as possible. That said, she did emphasize no contact sports for that period. Yeah, I I love that topic, that pearl that she talked about, because it just it just makes so much sense. Like, you know, you have a patient who is some active young person, maybe they uh, fell off a bike or they got hit uh, playing a sport. And if they're kind of on strict bed rest for a week or two, I mean, the toll on their mental health is going to be significant. You could easily see that happening. And so the idea of getting kind of out of the house, starting to do some things, but then saying, no, like, you know, maybe uh, don't do, um, you know, wrestling practice for, uh, you know, a longer period of time. It just makes so much sense. Absolutely. And I think the the main concern with the contact sports is just that they are at an increased risk for re-injury, that if they do have, you know, vestibular or um, cognitive impairments as a result, they are at higher risk of having repeated injury. And so she recommends at least two to four weeks of no contact sports. And then Sydney, beyond this acute period following the mild TBI, what what is the prognosis for, for this moving forward? Yeah, so I thought that was a really interesting component of the conversation was she was talking about that it's important to talk with families about what to expect here. 
And so most kids do recover within one month, but about 30% have symptoms for more than one to three months. And having that conversation ahead of time helps to set things up for providing whatever is needed for these kids to feel better as soon as possible. Sydney, uh, what are you paying attention to as the outpatient provider of a young person who had a TBI? Yeah, I think that's a great question, especially because a lot of times in primary care, you're not seeing them until it's been more like the few weeks or even the few months and they're having these residual symptoms. And I think an important component of that that she addressed was making sure that your treatment is addressing whatever domains are having impairment. So yes, of course, there's the cognitive component, but there is oculomotor rehab available in some neurology or TBI centers that can be really helpful for those symptoms, uh, treating mood symptoms in the same way we would otherwise, but just making sure that you're looking to all those different domains. Love it. Amazing. Cool. So why don't we move on to our last episode that we're recapping tonight about acute otitis media. Yes, this episode, number 20 of the Cribsiders, we had guest Dr. Eric Baum, who's a pediatric otolaryngologist, join us for this episode. I had the opportunity to produce this episode. It was a blast, and he gave us so many great learning points. So we'll start with um, what he really emphasized with the history taking for acute otitis media, was speaking with the parents about the history and their knowledge of of the patient and the kid and asking questions that that pertain to how the kid is normally acting like when they come in with with pulling or tugging at the ears is this a kid who normally pulls at their ears and and how do they eat and drink at baseline to get a sense of if there are any big changes and really relying on that history to help guide your your HPI yeah what did he what did he uh say about fever so for for fever he he said it's key. He said that acute otitis media is a bacterial infection and likened it to an abscess within the ear. So, and really thinking about that framework helped guide the rest of his both physical exam and management for, for acute otitis media. So really, if you have something like an absence, uh, abscess or purulent fluid behind the tympanic membrane, then your body is mounting an inflammatory response and you would expect to see fever. So that's a very important part of the history. And, and just remembering that middle ear infections are painful. So for kids who have acute otitis media, we see them not wanting to eat because it's painful. Or in one learning point that I had never thought to ask was asking about pain when lying down. Dr. Baum said that that um, can sometimes be indicative of a brewing infection. Can you, uh, Cleo, talk a little bit? I thought she, I thought that he did a really nice job of talking about the mechanism of how these infections occur. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I also loved this this description of how we develop acute otitis media. Frequently, there's a preceding viral URI um, that's causing some mucosal edema, some swelling um, in the setting of patients who have immature eustachian tubes, and that combination prevents drainage of your middle ear space, resulting in acute otitis media. For me, as someone who, for some reason, there are certain parts of anatomy that just really 
confuse me and overwhelm me. I really liked his comparison between the eustachian tube to the larynx in terms of the idea that it's the sort of thing that is supposed to be closed most of the time, except for a few times where it needs to be open. And that's really much more the case in young kids. He described it as being set up to fail. And I think that is kind of helps provide the mechanism that mechanistically why we see this more in kids of a certain age. I'm pretty sure he mentioned some very small muscles in the ear space that I had totally forgotten from anatomy class, but agree. He, it's like a pulley system. That's a bit, pretty much all I remember. <laughs> I just remember I started sweating when he said that muscle. Yeah. I, I just immediately broke out into a cold sweat. Same. <laughs> so um, we kind of have some ideas about what we should be asking about. What did, what did Dr. Baum talk about with regards to physical exam? Well, for um, acute otitis media, it is a key, key part of your encounter because you want to be able to look at the ear and see if there is an infection. And I think that's one of the, the interesting things and, and fun things about this diagnosis that, is that it can be visualized so well with an otoscope. However, Dr. Baum really gave us some space to learn how to do <laughs> to do this ear exam properly. He described it as a, a very slow learning curve, not a steep one. So with that, really just repeated ear exams using the otoscope to try to visualize the tympanic membrane. Once you can do that, and I'll say <laughs> not so easy all the time, but when you look at the tympanic membrane, he talked about this purulent fluid that should be behind the, the TM. And with that, that's what you're looking for. But there are other features if you don't have the clearest picture of the tympanic membrane that can be indicative of an infection, such as engorgement of the vessels around the tympanic membrane and in addition to bulging. Though I will also say that for the bulging, he said, you know, we're looking through the otoscope, we have sort of a two-dimensional view. We It's really hard for us to perceive that bulging in the third dimension when we're just using an otoscope. He invited us to the OR, but I don't know if anyone's taken him up on that quite yet. <laughs> I don't think any of us have taken him up. It sounds amazing. <laughs> sounds amazing, but I was so glad he said that because I think in like the AAP, some of the AAP descriptions and guidelines, they say bulging as one of the main factors to diagnose and Sometimes I'll just sit there looking at a tympanic membrane, wondering, is this bulging? <laughs> and I was so glad that an ENT said, it's okay. It's actually really hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, I think I we all felt that way. I will say after listening to this episode, two things I'm doing differently, or I started doing differently pretty immediately was one, using a lot bigger speculums in very little kids. I think he said even older than, basically older than 12 months, maybe it was age two, but starting to use the larger ones and see if it'll fit and that it actually caused less pain because I was just so anxious about inserting a big speculum into a little person, but it's actually made it way easier and kids seem to tolerate it better. And then really looking for that opacity instead of driving myself crazy, trying to determine whether something is bulging or not bulging. And so, uh, Cleo, what, what about, um, AOM versus middle ear effusion? What's, what's the difference there? And what did Dr. Baum say about treatment for that? Yeah. So coming back to this idea of purulent fluid, meaning bacterial infection, the difference is if you're seeing a middle ear effusion, it, 
is not inflamed. So it's, it's not going to be purulent in nature, but he did say that if you see an effusion by itself, it, it's not an indication for treatment, but it could be indicative of a post infectious process that's persisting as an infusion, which I thought was an interesting point. Yeah. It almost sounded like from his perspective, the ENT perspective, the effusions, the long-standing effusions that affect hearing might end up being something he treats more. Disagree? No, I just don't remember that. <laughs> oh, he was just saying that like, that's, he was just saying that like, that's what he gets worried about is like hearing loss, but. Yes. Yeah, so that's true. And in terms of treatment for um, acute otitis media, really what we're thinking about treating is the, the three major bacteria, strep pneumo, non-typable H flu, and moraxella. And for those, we reach for high dose amoxicillin as our mainstay of treatment. But he did also talk about some, some other options, including augmentin, inceftinir, which Justin made a, a punny comment about in the episode, as alternatives to treatment. And then thinking about when you should consider if you are diagnosing someone with acute otitis media, you're prescribing amoxicillin, you send them home when you should be concerned that they're not improving. Dr. Baum said, don't wait for that course of amoxicillin to finish. If they're not improving in the next day or two, they should be, they should, you know, have less pain or have an improved fever curve at that point. And so at that point, he said to bring them back in, talk about other options. Don't wait the full course, which I thought was a good point. Yeah. Like many things in pediatrics, close follow-up, one of the most important things in this, in this condition. And I, I also liked how he talked about if you do decide to not treat, if you decide to do some watchful waiting, it's like a mild to moderate symptoms, you know, in a child that's a little bit older, like maybe a year old that you feel more comfortable watching and waiting, having that plan with the parents of, if this doesn't get any better, we'll treat with antibiotics. But by telling them that you're creating some trust and saying, um, we know a lot of these are going to get better on their own, but we will be ready with antibiotics if we need to. That's great. That's great. Thinking about when otitis media causes a perforated tympanic membrane. Dr. Baum was talking about how for him, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad otitis media, air quotes. It can just be um, something that happens and there's it's hard to predict, but those can be treated with fluoroquinolone drops because you have direct access to the ear at that point, but should also be treated with oral antibiotics and they should heal on their own. Um, he has a very low threshold to add something like a topical steroid to, to decrease inflammation. For patients who have tubes in place and they have otorrhea, that's an opportunity to treat with drops because he emphasizes direct access to the middle ear space, really increasing the concentration of the antibiotics that you're using. So I thought that was a very, really helpful helpful point. what do you guys think about what he had to say about complications of acute otitis media? Yeah. So I think that the, the main ones he was talking about are obviously something that we are very afraid of in pediatrics and things that we're looking out for. So facial paralysis, mastoiditis, intracranial complications. Yeah. And honestly, he made me feel better uh, on this topic because with someone with so much experience in, um, uh, ear conditions and the potential downsides. He made me feel better in that if you either watchfully wait 
or if you treat and it doesn't get better right away, that it's not, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to um, go to these feared complications, mastoiditis, facial paralysis. But instead, he kind of described like almost a phenotype of people mixed with specific bugs and episodes of AOM that go to this level to become this serious. And it's not necessarily that like we would change the trajectory so much if we had just treated two days earlier, but instead we just need to keep a really close eye on everybody. And I think you're exactly right in the, the, the close, we want to keep a close eye because there are really serious complications that can happen that while he also made me feel better in this, in this area, I also um, was reminded of how, how serious it can be. And cause he was like, this is the most re- common reason why patients present to the doctor, I think. Um, and so this is helpful to remember that there are some complications to, to be uh, mindful of when you're treating this. Awesome guys. I think that was fun. Do you learn something? I really loved that. I think we need to do more of this for sure. Uh, yes, definitely. I think I was taken to the next level on a couple topics tonight. Definitely. So should we wrap it up? Let's do it. This has been another episode of the Cribsiders. <laughs> it's for the kids. <laughs> Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. Normally, we would thank all of our producers, but they are not here today, um, all of them. So just thank you to the whole team for uh, helping us put together this episode um, into our social media team, into our hosts, Justin, and Chris, and everyone here, Sydney. Edward, thanks. I've been Edward Cordy. I've been Cleo Roshat. And I've been Sydney Engel. Thank you and good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.